the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. This is Future Proof on Newstalk, our weekly science program on the station. My name is Jonathan McRae. Now, while we may not be aware of it, each and every one of us is a slave to an unseen and unknowable master. It rules the sun and the earth, roving the cosmos with indifference, presiding over the birth and death of stars and galaxies and every living thing. It is, of course, time. And consequently, we have a long-standing obsession with measuring it. But just how far back does that obsession go? And how do we measure time anyway? Chad Orzel is an associate professor at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Union College in, I don't know, you've got to try and pronounce that, in New York somewhere, and author of A Brief History of Timekeeping, The Science of Marking Time from Stonehenge to Atomic Clocks. He joins me now. How do I pronounce that? Schenectady? Yeah, it's an Iroquois phrase that means a place beyond the pines. There's an area of pine barrens. Well, I like it. I like it. I like the way it sounds. It's hard to it's hard to figure out exactly how to pronounce it. Welcome uh, to the program, Chad. I'm really interested in time on, on lots of different levels, but let's start off with the with the the, the basic ones. When when did we start measuring time, as, as far as we know, and and what sort of methods did we do to to do that? So uh, the the very oldest thing that people will claim is some sort of timekeeping device is actually a, a piece of antler found in a cave in France that's about 30,000 years old that has some uh, sort of crescent-shaped marks carved into it. And uh, people claim that this is a, a device for tracking the phases of the moon. And so that would be a, a really, really ancient. Uh, but, you know, it's also it's just some marks on a bone found in a cave. So it could be... <laughs> You, know, you seem very skeptical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Stonehenge so, so and stuff. Yeah, some Sorry, of the yeah. oldest things that are unambiguously clocks, uh, one of the most spectacular examples is there in Ireland, uh, is the Newgrange Monument outside of Dublin, uh, which is, you know, 5,200 years old. It's a giant artificial hill uh, containing a, a vaulted uh, stone chamber in the center of this mound. And you get to it by a, a very narrow passage that's about 20 meters long. And this is aligned so that once a year on the the winter solstice in December, the rising sun casts a, a single ray down this long passageway into the central chamber. So this I, I is love a that thing. You, I love that you're um, on, on Irish radio explaining Newgrange. Not 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 in a bad yeah. way, but it's what, what I love is that every single child has been to this place and uh, has learned but, this. But, yeah, uh, but but but. Uh, it is it is an amazing monument. We sometimes we don't realize how cool the things that we have um, are. We're, when this program, we're often talking about other inventions elsewhere. But Newgrange is such a stunning thing. It just tells the day once a year, though, right? I mean, if you either know it's solstice or not solstice, is that correct? Is it a sort of a binary clock in that way? Right. So you can think of it as a as a kind of clock that that ticks once a year. Right. And this tells you when it's the solstice. And that's actually incredibly important information if you're, uh, you know, an agrarian Neolithic society, right, where you depend on the the natural world for everything. Right. So knowing that, OK, now it's as bad as it's going to get. Right. This is as short <laughs> as the days are going to get from here on out. We get more light. And, you know, now you start preparing for for spring. That's really important information to have. And that's why it was worth, you know, 5200 years ago going to such a such enormous lengths. We obviously have been measuring time in terms of night and day for extremely long. Um, I mean, since since I mean, it's built into our DNA in circadian rhythms, right? We 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 have been measuring time in that way. But in in terms of a more precise time, I understand how we might have gotten days, obviously, because you know, mm-hmm. night and day—that's easy one. 
How do we get hours in minutes and seconds? So you start getting hours and minutes and, and seconds in uh, astronomy, really. It's people looking at the, the motion of the stars as they, they go uh, across the sky and, and, you know, really tracking, okay, like where in, you know, what are the stars that are visible right above the horizon when the sun first sets? What are the stars visible right above the horizon just before the sun rises? Uh, and people tracking that and doing really careful measurements there, that starts to drive a lot of, of really precise timekeeping. And that's also very, very ancient. Uh, we have, there's a tomb in Egypt where uh, a court official from about 1500 BCE uh, brags about having invented a kind of clock that could keep accurate time through the night all year long. Uh, and this is this is a water clock. Uh, we have an example from a couple hundred years later that survived that's, uh, it's shaped kind of like a flower pot, sort of a tapered uh, alabaster vessel with a hole in the bottom. And water, you fill it with water and it drains out slowly. And it's really remarkable because the shape of this thing is is tapered in a way that makes the rate of water flow uh, very constant. And right. then there's markings on the inside that, that divide into hours. And there are different spacings for different months of the year. So it's actually a really sophisticated device. I guess my question is, why do we bother segmenting into hours? Why would why Why did we choose 24 hours as opposed to, you know... 12, yeah, the, two hour the, periods. Well, there's there's two things. The 12s show up because there's roughly 12 full moons in a year, right? It's, a, it's like 12 and a half. So uh, it's a little awkward. But if you're counting, you know, uh, from one solstice to the next, you get 12, maybe 13 uh, full moons. And so, so they carried uh, on that idea of 12 into into the day and night. Is that the idea? Yeah. And then the hours and minutes come because everybody in the Mediterranean region was cribbing from the Babylonians who had an arithmetic system that was based on the number 60. So like where we use units of tens, they would use units of 60. And, um, you know, they measured everything that way. And then everybody's just sort of copied their numbers for huh. centuries afterwards. And the book is, is great in that it go it tells all of these really interesting stories about Chinese water clocks and all these different ancient ways of measuring time. At some point, though, it was it was figured out that we need to measure time a bit more accurately than seconds. When was that? When did we get sub-second time measuring? Presumably, this was something driven by commerce or science. Uh, you start having to worry about times on that scale when you start to get into the the electronic age. Uh, so, you know, very good mechanical clocks will uh, allow you to measure time to to fractions of a second that are fairly small. And people start worrying about that when they're they're You're starting to look at, you know, light as a wave and we're looking at it as oscillations of things. We want to know how fast are those oscillations. You need to measure those very precisely. Um, astronomy gets better and better and better. And they're constantly trying to measure things to, you know, seconds and fractions of a second. Uh, it really takes off in the 20th century with things like quartz clocks that oscillate at extremely high speeds and give you this this ultra precise kind of timekeeping. OK, so that that's where I'd like to start the education of Jonathan McRae. <laughs> so I, I'm not good at electricity. I'll tell you that. Right. So I don't understand electricity. I've had it explained to me many times on this program. I understand how mechanical clocks, a water clock I can get. I can understand pendulums, but I cannot understand how we manage to measure time from things like quartz or anything after that. So can you please explain how quartz is measured in a watch? Yeah, so quartz is a, is a really interesting material because it, it has a, a property. It's called piezoelectricity, uh, which means if you uh, 
squeeze it, it generates a voltage. Or if you apply a voltage to it, it stretches the, the crystal. Uh, so you can push it around. And the principle of a quartz clock is not actually that different than a, a pendulum clock uh, in that it's based on it's timing things by the vibration of a physical thing. So inside your quartz watch, there's a little tuning fork made out of quartz, and it has uh, some electrodes on it. And one set of electrodes is used to, to apply a voltage that makes it vibrate at its characteristic frequency that depends on the size and shape of the, the tuning fork. And the other set of electrodes um, picks up the voltage that it generates as it does that. And so that oscillation happens at a very regular frequency. And it turns out that, that quartz is, is incredibly stiff mechanically. So it, it oscillates at a very high frequency and a very stable frequency. Uh, and if you cut it the right way, it doesn't uh, depend on temperature significantly. So it's a fantastically good standard for a clock. So what you've done here is you've used electricity to explain um, the quartz uh, watch, which of course is is a, is a stumbling block for me. So just again, I should be embarrassed about admitting this on the air, but you pass an electric current through it and then it it vibrates and you measure the vibration of the, the, the crystal? Right. Well, you can think of it very much, you know, they're shaped like tuning forks. And so you can think of the process very much like using a tuning fork in music, right? You, you have this, this aluminum fork uh, that you, you know, you bang on the edge of a table and it starts vibrating and it vibrates at a, a frequency, you know, it, it makes a musical note that right. is determined by the size and shape of the fork. The quartz is doing the same thing. Uh, what you do is you, you apply a voltage to basically whack it and start it vibrating. And then you use other electrodes to pick up, okay, what is the frequency at which this thing is vibrating? Right. Okay. Okay. I get that. I get that. Thank you very much. Chad. So, the quartz clock, obviously, being uh, so easy to manipulate in many ways, led to uh, a, a huge evolution of our ability to record time. How did that change science and the world of, of people? So it, it ends up uh, having a, a remarkable kind of democratizing effect in that, um, you know, prior to the 1960s, you know, if you wanted to get a watch, you could get a mechanical watch that was pretty good. Um, and those, those were, were reasonably cheap. It was, you know, a few dollars. Um, but in the, starting in the sixties, the when they start making quartz watches, you can get these watches that are good to, you know, a second a year kind of time scale if you're really careful about keeping them. And so you get this fantastically accurate timekeeping just everywhere, right? Like, like everybody now sort of takes for granted that you can, you know, have a watch that has a stopwatch function on it that will, you know, let you time your kids, you know, racing down the street uh, to, you know, hundredths of a second. And nobody thinks twice about that. So we have this amazing precision available to just absolutely everybody. Well, when we move on then from the quartz clock, uh, we use newer materials to become more accurate. And I guess one of my questions, which I, I think I've asked in this program before is, how can you tell if a more accurate clock is accurate, it is more accurate if all you have up until that date is less accurate clocks? Yeah, there's this really interesting bootstrapping process that goes on, right? So we start with with keeping time by the sun and looking at, you know, okay, uh, we count one day as the sun comes back to the same position. Uh, but then people pretty quickly realize that, you know, okay, well, the days vary in length, so we got to count something else, right? So, we, so we're doing, you know, years and fractions of a year. And then as you get uh, better and better, you, you start to see that, you know, even the length of a day, right? Uh, once you have quartz clocks, and um, 
and super good pendulum clocks, you can look at those and say, well, look, the length of a day changes, right? As not, not just in the predictable way that comes from astronomy, but uh, changes kind of randomly, right? Every time there's a, there's a big earthquake, right? There'll be a news story saying that, well, the, you know, the rotation rate of the earth changed by, you know, a hundred nanoseconds a day because we can measure that. So, yeah, yeah, this is, this. Uh, like you get a really big earthquake, like the Fukushima one, uh, changed the the length of a day by by some like microseconds, wow. and that's a thing you can you can in principle measure because it you know shifts mass around in the planet and then the Earth rotates at a slightly different rate. Uh, this is because gravity affects time, as we know from Einstein. Uh, no, this is just uh, this is just you know time as uh, measured by the sun, right? The rate oh, right, of rotation okay. of the Earth okay. changes a little bit. And it's slowly okay. drifting because of the moon, uh, the, the, the action of the moon, that the same gravitational pull that causes tides deforms the crust of the earth a little bit. And that, that causes the rotation to slow down. And so we're, we're slowly, the, the days are slowly getting longer because of the action of the moon. Right. Okay. I, I hadn't uh, thought about that, but, but, uh, but that is obviously problematic then if you're anchoring your timing to the sun and instead uh, we decided right. to anchor anchor it to something a lot smaller than the sun. Um, yeah, yeah. so if you're, if you're looking at the rotation of the Earth, you can see that that's not actually a stable thing. And then, so we shifted in 1960 to uh, the orbit of the Earth around the sun, which also changes, but changes much more slowly. And so that was the standard for a few years. And then they went to uh, cesium atomic clocks in 1967. Um, and the, the idea here, the way you, you upgrade from one standard to another is basically, you know, you, you get a standard that you understand the principle of its operation well enough that you say, okay, I know what's going on here. And I trust that this is perfectly regular, uh, to a degree that the motion of the earth is not. And, you know, and you have some understanding of, okay, what is it that's screwing us up with the motion of the earth? And then you sort of move to a better standard. So, so how does an atomic clock work and why cesium? So uh, an atomic clock is uh, a little bit of a misnomer because the thing that's actually doing the ticking is actually light. Uh, so in a sense, it you would be better off calling it a light clock because what's uh, providing the time standard in a cesium atomic clock is actually a microwave source. Um, and it produces light that oscillates at 9,192,631,770 times per second. And that, that's <laughs> the oscillation frequency by definition. And then the cesium atoms are there as a check on that frequency. Okay. So can you, can you explain that a little bit more? So quantum physics is the, the basis of this. And it tells us that uh, electrons and atoms have certain allowed states, certain energy states that they can be in. And they absorb and emit light when they move between these states. The frequency of the light that they absorb or emit depends on the energy difference. So uh, the laws of physics tell us that cesium atoms have a certain set of allowed states. And those, sets, those states are absolutely identical for every cesium atom in the universe. So if you have a cesium atom, you know that it'll have these two states that are separated by this much in energy, and that corresponds to light at a particular frequency. So you can use the cesium atom as a time standard, right? So we uh, make a microwave source that we think is oscillating at this 9.19 billion times per second frequency, and then we shine some of that light on cesium atoms and see, okay, is this the frequency of light that they want to absorb and emit? 
if it is, then okay, we've got our, our clock. We know we can count these microwave oscillations to mark time. And if it doesn't, then we tweak the microwaves until until it does. Okay, very good. Um, I, I'd love to explore um, how, how time changes uh, as we go further away from large objects, but there's a lot in the book and, and that's one of the things it talks about uh, as well. And unfortunately, we, we, we haven't got uh, enough time to do that. Um, but I really enjoyed chatting with you and thank you for being so patient with me on the program. Yeah, thanks thank for having me on. This is, this is fun to talk about. So the book, uh, as I say, is called A Brief History of Timekeeping, The Science of Making Time from Stonehenge to Atomic Clocks, uh, and it's available now. That's it from us on this week's programme.